Well, everybody, this is it. Our final new show. And the last time I'm going to say, I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and this is Marketplace Weekend, where the economy meets real life. We've spent four years bringing you stories about how money, well, is really just a lens through which we can examine our priorities and our choices, the ones we make and the ones we have to make, and what all of that can teach us. I've so enjoyed telling these stories and spending this time with you. And we're going to start this week's show with a continuation of what we talked about last week when we dedicated our show to the economics of disability and what it feels like to live with one or several and to interact with the economy. A big part of that is work, from getting a job to getting accommodations to do that job. We wanted to take a look now at what that means for employers with David Lewis, president of Operations, Inc., a human resources consulting business. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Lizzie. Good to be back with you. What do employers think or what what do they think about when they're thinking about hiring or retaining people who have disabilities? It depends on the size of the business. I think the larger companies tend to have um, initiatives even in this direction because there continues to be um, an emphasis, and I, I think a good one, on trying to maintain a diversified population. I think the smaller companies are utterly confused by this even though the regulation has been out there for a while, they don't understand this term of reasonable accommodation. They want to do the right thing, but they're maybe in an old building that didn't have to comply with the ADA. So it still may, um, is very much a mystery for a lot of smaller businesses. Yeah, one of the things that we heard in doing our disability special is, look, this is the law. And yet I think we've also seen some small employers sort of feel like, ah, this is a burden on me. Is there a way uh, to meet in the middle or make it so that people with a disability don't have to, you know, brandish the threat of a lawsuit just for stuff that they should be getting anyway? Yeah, I I think the problem in part is that the federal government, in my opinion, having been out here now 33 years, just hasn't done a good enough job of sort of the frequently asked questions part of this whole law. You know, businesses read this term of reasonable accommodation. They see an individual who, you know, is in a wheelchair or who has a hearing disability, to, um, just to give you two examples, and they don't really fully understand what the burden is on them. And in fact, you know, the, the burden can be relatively light. It's not going to cost them a lot of money, but they, they run in the other direction because once they start looking at the regulation, they're fearful about what compliance is going to look like, how much it's going to cost. And because they don't understand it, they'd rather just avoid it. You know, there is this sense in the disability community that businesses either don't know, as you've mentioned, how to accommodate people with disabilities or or that they don't want to. When you talk to businesses, does that seem true? I think it is true. For the businesses that don't want to, they look at, you know, what essentially is involved in engaging an individual with a disability and they come to the conclusion that it's just too much work. And listen, the disabled community, rightfully so, is turned off by a lot of this. So they steer clear of a lot of businesses that they feel are not going to either understand their legal obligation, not comply, or not be accommodating enough, and put them in that position where they have to, uh, have to undertake a fight. It's why I think you'll see that the dis- disabled community tends to migrate to larger companies because they find those organizations are more understanding of the law and more welcome to that population. 
One of the things we talked about a lot on the show is language. And I guess I wonder what goes into writing a job description to make it more accessible. And is that a place where you see companies paying any attention? So the first thing that companies need to understand is that job descriptions um, are a legal document and are subject to scrutiny as it relates to compliance and more specifically as it relates to language that could be easily construed as discriminatory in nature. So, you know, with that, yeah, the, the companies who now have pivoted their direction to at least understand, A, what compliance looks like, and B, that they're trying to present themselves as open and welcome to any candidate, regardless of any limitations they may possess, are writing descriptions very purposely without descriptors that imply able-bodiedness or that, require, that essentially imply a lack of disability. If someone is listening to this and they run a company, and I'm guessing here it's probably the the smaller company, because as you mentioned, big companies, you know, ha- have been a little bit uh, more inclusive about this. What can they do to go about making their workplace, their hiring practices more accessible? And, and are there resources they can, you know, read, find, look up? Go to the professionals. Go to the people who do this for a living on a government level or on the private level. And talk to them and say, hey, we want to engage this population. We want to support them. There are entities that will come out on the nonprofit level who will go visit your site, do a site evaluation, and give you a sense of what is going to work as far as your setup is concerned, who will show you how to get equipment free of charge, who will show you where there is opportunities to use grants that are in the government that are designed to help the disabled become employed so that it's not nearly as difficult as it seems. David Lewis is the president of Operations, Inc. Thank you so much for talking with me. Thanks, Lizzie. All this year, Marketplace has been looking at how the 2008 financial crisis changed us in a series we call Divided Decade. That crisis left millions of homes around the country in foreclosure, and many communities are still grappling with the aftermath. Marketplace senior correspondent Amy Scott is back from Cleveland, Ohio, where she's been looking into one legacy of the foreclosure epidemic, the rise of what critics call alternative home purchase scams. Hi, Amy. Hi, Lizzie. So what is an alternative home purchase scam? That's the term. And I guess, how do these deals work? So I've been looking into two forms of this. Uh, One is called a land contract or a contract for deed. And it's kind of like a private mortgage where a person trying to buy a home pays a monthly amount plus rent to the seller, uh, but doesn't actually get the deed until they've paid off the full purchase price. And then there's something else called a lease with option to buy, where the person is a tenant, they pay a monthly rent, and a portion of that rent goes toward a down payment on an agreed-upon purchase price. Um, And these kinds of private transactions have been around for a long time, you know, during the age of redlining when African-American families couldn't actually get mortgages from banks. Land contracts were sometimes the only way uh, to buy homes. That's right. But after the foreclosure crisis, we really saw a resurgence because there were all these cheap foreclosed homes. Investors bought them up. 
uh, but then couldn't sell them because mortgage lending had dried up. So these alternatives were a way to make money without having to spend a lot fixing up these houses, which sometimes were in terrible shape. Um, The problem is these deals for the would-be buyers can be very risky. I talked to one person who's been studying this. Uh, Sarah Mancini is an attorney with the National Consumer Law Center. If they miss a single payment, they can lose everything and be evicted like a tenant. So they're really not building up any equity in the home. They don't have any right to protections in the form of a foreclosure process. Even though you take on all of the burdens of homeownership, you have none of those legal protections. There were several protections put into place for consumers in the wake of the financial crisis. Is this stuff legal? Well, in most states, Mancini says the landlord or whoever holds the deed is legally responsible for major repairs and taxes. Um, So the contracts are illegal in the sense that they are unenforceable or may be unenforceable. The problem is nobody's really policing this stuff. What brought you to South Euclid, Ohio in particular? Why'd you go there? South Euclid is an inner ring suburb of Cleveland. If you know the city at all, it's got inner and outer ring suburbs. Yep. And like the whole area, it was hit pretty hard by the foreclosure crisis. At one point, uh, 20% of the homes in this small town were in foreclosure. And that made it really attractive for real estate investors. Um, So I spent some time with Sally Martin, who's the housing director for the city, whose job was created in 2008 to deal with all of the abandoned and foreclosed properties. And she's sort of taken it upon herself to investigate these rent-to-own situations. I saw several homes where people were either in a lease with option to buy or a land contract, where it turned out the house had dozens of code violations, sometimes thousands of dollars in unpaid taxes that they were responsible for. So Sally and I stopped by the home of a woman named Maria Torres, who signed a lease with an option to buy a house for $45,000 last year. Um, And then it turned out there were 112 housing code violations and $3,000 in property taxes that, according to her lease, she's responsible for. So she and Sally talked about what she was going to do. If you don't pay the taxes, can they put you out? Because that was part of your obligation. They possibly could. And you'd lose your Mm $12,000 and you'd lose all that you paid. I'm in no position to pay that amount of money, like, up front. You know what I mean? So I'm just like... That freaked me out. So Sally Martin was hoping to get Maria Torres into some kind of credit counseling program so that she can eventually qualify for a mortgage and buy the place outright to get out from that situation. Were you able to track down the landlord in that situation? Well, it turns out the landlord uh, is sort of a... (laughs) A shifting situation. It was originally bought by an LLC called Odell Roy out of South Carolina. But then that uh, company transferred the property to another for much more money. Originally, it was bought for $14,000. It was transferred for more than $84,000. And no one from any of the companies involved has been willing to give me an interview. If somebody really wants to own a home, they can't get traditional credit or mortgage but they're willing to put some work in, um, is there a way that this could work out for them and not necessarily be a bad deal? Yeah, and I did talk to one former land contract investor who uh, 
fixed up the properties before doing a deal. He was not trying to scam people. Um, It turned out, though, it just wasn't profitable for him. I've also got some reporting coming out about a Silicon Valley startup that's trying a new Hmm. rent-to-own model that offers some protections for renters if it doesn't work out. Marketplace's Amy Scott, thank you so much. Thank you. Here on the show, we have some staples, a few things designed to help us all make sense of the world, and one of them is news by the numbers. we got a different take on this regular segment today with Marketplace's Tony Wagner and Sarah Menendez. Thanks, Lizzie. Our first number is... 208. That's how many episodes of Marketplace Weekend have aired. Our first Marketplace Weekend show aired exactly four years ago today. And since then, we've traveled the country and talked to people all over the world. Thank you all for sharing your stories and experiences. 85,500. That's about how many tweets Lizzie has sent from her at Lizzie O'Reilly Twitter account since she joined the service in 2009. Those tweets include countless dog photos of her dog Mara. Lots of great journalism advice. And a whole lot of this next thing. One. That's how many times Lizzie has made the Marketplace Weekend team talk about bear cam on air. You know, it's that live stream of brown bears in Alaska. Well, technically, this is the second time. And that's enough. Right, Lizzie? That's, we're good, right? No more bear cam. No more. Always more bear cam. Always! We've got a story now on the business of weather. And get this, until the 1950s, the government told forecasters they couldn't use the word tornado for fear that inaccurate predictions on inaccurate equipment would cause more panic than good. But technology evolved, and soon tracking storms became a high-risk hobby for storm chasers. Enter Roger Hill. He runs the storm chasing company Silver Lining Tours. Marketplace's Peter Balanon-Rosen flew to the heart of Tornado Alley to see how to make a business of predicting the unpredictable. Actually, I soon learned there's no guarantee we'd see anything. It's not when we'll come across some violent act of nature, it's if we will. Which I suppose is some kind of thrill, but that seems like a wild business model. It's it's kind of the fun in it, actually. I meet Roger Hill at a Wyndham Garden Hotel near Will Rogers Airport in Oklahoma City. It's the night before his third storm-chasing tour of the year. I'm going to tag along. I mean, we may start the day in Oklahoma City and then realize all the models are showing that we have to be in western Kansas or or in the Texas Panhandle or eastern Colorado. I mean, it it varies day to day. Basically, looking at forecasts and going, like the country's some playground to explore. But I wanted to know about this guy, an Air Force vet whose reputation for reading weather got people to pay almost $3,000 each for a storm chasing tour. I don't know. I've just always been just extremely fascinated by severe weather. Hill's like the Papa Bear of storm chasers. Over six feet tall, with a warm smile, he holds the Guinness World Record for most tornadoes ever seen. 630 as of December 2015 when he earned that title. I always said when I hit a thousand tornadoes that I would quit. <laughs> but for now, this is Hill's passion and paycheck. Could I have everybody come over here? 17 guests gather outside of the hotel for day one of the week-long tour. It's 7 a.m. So, today... 
The idea is to head from Oklahoma City to northwest Nebraska on the promise of a potential thunderstorm. All right, northbound we go. It'll be a long day. <laughs> Hopefully we get something to look at. The group, in three identical white vans, sets out. Now, this is a business, and it has costs. About a quarter of a million bucks each year for insurance, vehicle maintenance, fuel, hotels each night, plus advertising, a website, and merch. About 700 miles, 13 hours, and a few potty breaks later, we're nearly to the Nebraska-South Dakota border. Blue skies as far as you can see. We stop for gas. I check in with Hill. We have thunderstorms right off to the west and to the northwest, and uh, we're hoping they survive long enough for us to get out there and at least see a few bolts of lightning. We'd sprinted halfway across America with no guarantee, but then... Oh, there was some lightning. We pull over. People pile out of vans, cameras in hand. We're not close enough to hear the storm, but we can see it. Deep, dark purple clouds roll and tumble, occasionally glowing pink as lightning flickers. A setting sun turns the horizon orange, like a blanket of fire separating prairie from powerful storm. It's quiet. When you think about storm chasing, at least for me, I pictured it being this really noisy, high-adrenaline rush. People screaming and hooting and hollering. But we get out here, and it's just kind of silent as the sky's flickering back at us. Everyone's just looking. They're taking it in. Up above, it looks like the sky's almost dancing. It does. It looks like tap and jazz and ballet and modern (laughs) and hip-hop all at once. (laughs) Laura Cohen traveled from New Jersey. It's her third tour with Roger Hill. And it's these moments, coming face-to-face with nature's power, that keep her coming back. I'm seeing something that reminds me I have no control over anything. Life doesn't always work like this when you actually plan it, time it, and then show up and it's right here. We watch from a few different places. Soon, it's nearly 11 p.m., 16 hours since starting out, but the workday for Roger Hill still isn't over. We reach a small hotel. He hands out room keys to the weary group, rooms booked from the road. If you all need to get a hold of me, I'm in room 121. It's late but he's both in the entertainment and customer service biz. Now, it's easy to romanticize this as a glorified road trip, and for plenty of the guests, it is. But there's something else, too. At a gas station in Iowa the next day, high school art teacher Tara Keen tells me her dad was a storm chaser. He passed away 10 years ago, and my goal was to go chasing. She did this tour in 2015 and now chases on her own, So why pay thousands of dollars to come back? You can learn about storms on a textbook or on Google or YouTube, but if you watch the process that happens before that, um, getting to the storm and what's involved, it is a very intricate dance that you have to do. Well, you have storms developing about 50 miles east of here, and so we're going to go chase. Sitting shotgun in a van, Roger Hill reads weather models on a computer, tries to figure out what the weather will do, and stay three moves ahead. It's more a nerd's game than an adrenaline junkie's. You have storms that are forming up just to our east, but they're not very good storms. Uh Uh-oh. We'll see what happens. Hill's not alone in this business of weather. Storm-chasing tours have gotten so popular, they're now websites with reviews and ratings for over a dozen different tours. Hill knows there's competition, too. Asks people not to tweet out where we are. We turn onto a gravel road. He checks the radar. Oh, my God, that's terrible looking. Oh, boy. There's nothing there. The storm we're chasing, it fizzled. No one 
the towel. This is but I guess that's part of the chase. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Hill remembers advice he got from an old boss. If you can find a job that in, that is your passion in life and make a living doing it, he said, do it. And I did. Five more years, he says, then he'll retire. But for now, it's life on the road. I'm Peter Balanon Resin for Marketplace. summer, so officially, hopefully, vacation time, which means you probably got to ask your boss for some time off. Here to tell us how to do that with grace is Allison Green from Ask a Manager. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. Let's start basic here. What what are the basics of asking your boss for time off? Um, You know, how do you do it so that it's tactful? But also, this is a time when lots of people want time off. So what's the best way? The thing to remember about vacation time is for most people, it's part of your benefits package. So you don't need to cajole or beg or or wheedle your way into getting vacation time. You should be able to be pretty straightforward about it. You know, it can be as simple, I'm thinking about my vacation time this year. I'd like to take off the first week in August. Does that sound okay to you? What about seniority? Because we had a a letter from a listener named John Lyon in Austin, Texas, Um, saying, you know, why does everyone get two weeks no matter how long they've been working somewhere? Now, that varies by company to company. But if you've worked somewhere for a little while, you got a good track record, can, can you go back in and say, hey, you know what? I think I deserve more. Yeah, absolutely. Once you've been working there a while and you're in good standing, you can try asking for more time off in the same way you might try asking for a raise. We have this one really great question that uh, I got to play for you. It is funny. It is highly specific. And honestly, it's just kind of great. So uh, let's hit that one. My name is Jules Taraya. I started a business this year in Alaska, but a lot of my customers are down in the lower 48. And uh, the topic of vacation came up and I had to explain to people that I'm just not really going to be available in September because that's when moose season is. And I uh, you never know when the moose is going to show up, so I may be gone for one week and maybe three, but uh, just plan on me not being around. And uh, the meeting just got quiet. Okay, so, you know, recognizing that moose season may not be a variable in everybody's work life, um, what can you do when you've got a highly specific issue and or one that's unpredictable and you need people to work around it? Yeah, well, I mean, in his case, this is one of the nice things about running your own business, that you get to decide for yourself when you're working and when you're not. In most fields, you can get away with telling clients that you'll be away for three weeks. That's not outrageous. I think in his case, he might be better off just saying he's going to be away for three weeks so that everyone can plan around that. If he comes back early, great. That's easier than unexpectedly being away longer than people were planning on. But you don't need to tell people <laughs> what you're doing with your time off. You can if you want, but it would also be totally fine for him to just say, you know, I'm taking a few weeks off in September and not get into the details about the moose if, <laughs> if that's feeling a little too exotic for his clients. Fair enough. Um, what do you think about using sick days as vacation days or travel days? Is this, is this a big no-no? Most employers aren't going to want you to use sick days for vacation because the idea is that sick days are there for when you get sick. And if you use them on vacation, they're not going to be there if you unexpectedly get sick later in the year. And that can put you and your employer 
in a bind. And that's also when you get people coming in sick to work and infecting their coworkers. Mm. So usually employers want you to keep sick leave separate, but not all of them. And, and also if you need a few extra days for like a dream vacation or your honeymoon, sometimes it's worth asking if you can pull those days from your bank of sick leave. Typically they just don't want you doing it all the time. Let's talk about what happens when you are on vacation. Many people are friendly with their coworkers or their coworkers follow them on social media. Um, you know, does it matter if you're hanging out in your bathing suit on a boat and your boss sees a picture of it? Or, you know, is it just, hey, we're all adults and it's fine here? It's not a bad idea to have some boundaries on social media so that your coworkers, and especially your boss, aren't seeing everything you post. I mean, vacation photos aren't usually a problem as long as they're reasonably wholesome. But if you're having a drunken vacation and you're doing shots in all of your photos, you probably don't want your colleagues having those images in their head. Where do you draw the line on disconnecting? And, and you know, is there ever a good reason to stay connected to the office when you're not there? There are some jobs where you know going in part of the deal is going to be that you'll have to have some availability even when you're technically on vacation. But for most people, most people really should be able to disconnect completely for a week or two. I think a lot of people feel like checking their email while they're on vacation is actually better for their quality of life because it means they won't come back to a huge mess waiting for them when they return and they can keep things reasonably under control. And and sometimes that's really true. But I more often than not, I would challenge people to see if there really is a way to just disconnect completely because you will come back refreshed and more productive. And it's not great for us mentally to always be thinking about work. You had somebody write a letter to Ask a Manager a little while back saying they felt like they could not go on vacation because their boss wouldn't work with the temps who were sent to fill in. They were kind of terrorizing them. The temps would go home in tears. Um, And, you know, this created a lot of anxiety for your letter writer. What did you say? She's got to talk to her boss and explain that he needs to lower his expectations for these temps because they're not going to be able to do her job exactly the way she does it. And if he makes it hard for her to ever get away, the job isn't going to be sustainable for her in the long run. And then he'll lose her altogether. So it's it's better for him to figure out a way to make do for a week or two without her than permanently. If you are the boss, how do you make sure that people take the time they need, but also, you know, that your your business, your office runs the way that it has to? It helps to ask people to get their time off requests in pretty early on so that you can figure out, can you give everyone the days off that they want or do you need to modify some of those? But also, if you're having trouble getting the coverage that you need for for times of the year that are very popular to take off, one thing you can do is offer incentives to get people to work during those times, you know, bonuses or extra vacation days later in the year. That can be a nicer way to do it because you'll often then get people who are volunteering to work on those most in-demand days and they kind of solve the problem for you. Allison Green writes the blog and the book, Ask a Manager, and she talks to us about life at work. Thank you so much, Allison. Thank you. You can listen to past advice from Allison on a variety of subjects, from shushing your annoying coworker to whether or not to wear shorts in the office. Just go to marketplace.org. Stay 
playing with the world of work, we all have our dream jobs. Some get a chance to actually do them. Like, well, me these past four years. Or this guy in our latest installment of How to Be a Blank. My name's Matthew Ashton and I'm Vice President of Design at the Lego Group. The teams that I work with are the teams that develop all of the physical toys. My job on a day-to-day basis is working with the design managers of those teams to bring all of those ideas to life in plastic form. And then I also have the opportunity to work on the Lego movies as well, which has been a kind of dream come true for me. Very exciting, very interesting job that is different every single day. I think if I really think back to my own childhood, toys was such a really big part of my life and I love toys so much and I actually remember sitting on my bedroom floor playing with my Lego with my brother just dreaming of being a toy designer when I grew up. But as I grew up I kind of forgot that and thought that's not a real thing, that's what Tom Hanks does in Big, the movie, or it's something that Santa's Little Helpers do and it's not a real job. So I just knew that I wanted to do something creative I decided I was going to be a fashion designer, went to university. I ultimately landed my dream job completely by accident. Some people from Lego spotted me and really liked what I did. So transitioning from fashion design to toys was kind of a dream come true anyway. I'd I'd done fashion, I'd enjoyed it, but this was my ultimate childhood dream. We recruit designers from all different places in the world and from all different backgrounds as as well. We've probably got around 250 designers working in the department at the moment and we've got 32 different nationalities within our department right now. A lot of the people that we recruit in either come from a toy design background or an industrial design background, but we've also occasionally hired in just adult fans of Lego. Their absolute passion they've built since they were a child and they're amazing builders. We've taken that opportunity to actually invite some hobbyists in and, and be part of our team as well. Everybody has to send in a sort of application with their portfolio so that's some visual representation of the work they do. So that can either, if they're coming from a fan background, be the models that they've built. If they've come from an industrial design background or whatever, then they need to sort of submit all of their projects. But the one thing that I personally look for is that balance between sort of professionalism that you can get a job done, you can follow a process from A to Z to get something launched and you also still need to have a bit of that inner child within you that you don't take things too seriously or simply the fact that they really want to do something that's going to make kids' dreams come true and give them toys that they're really engaged with playing with. It's a toy that you have to think about, so it's kind of like a jigsaw puzzle that they sometimes struggle through a little bit, but the sense of pride that a kid has when they've completed something, they've made something three-dimensional, and it's something that they can ultimately play with, and the joy that that brings to them is why I do this and why my job's so amazing. That piece was produced by Tony Wagner and Eliza Mills. And you can check out past versions of How to Be a Blank. Just go to marketplace.org. Admittedly, I need you to indulge me a bit right now, because I'm going to share three stories that are some of my favorites. Two years ago, I went to Flint, Michigan to report on lead poisoning in the city's water, and the disastrous series of political and financial choices beginning in 2014 that led to that crisis. This story, from 2016, is about the legacy of lead in the city's schools and its children's lives. 
<laughs> of the skills you'd expect a typical 12-year-old to have, filtering lead is not one of them. You um, push this down to make the filter like come on. But like most kids in Flint, Savannah Liddell is not living a typical existence right now. And when it's up, so which is the which is the good water, which is the bad water? Good and bad are relative in this case, since Savannah and her family still aren't drinking city water. They've got cases of bottled water stacked up in the hall of their apartment. And yes, the city gives out a case of water a day. But that doesn't really cut it for Savannah, her two brothers, the cousins who stay there, and her single dad, Philip, who's currently unemployed. Well, basically, I might, with this water, I might spend about $100 I don't have. He's even given his kids new rules about how to take a shower. Instead of using bar soap, I would get the uh, body wash. And I have, like, I tell them when they take a shower, put the body wash on you first, lather with body wash, without the water, and then, you know, pursue taking a bath. Spend as little time in the water as possible. Right, right, hurry up and get out of there. Like a lot of parents, Liddell is on the lookout for signs of lead damage in his kids. Well, you really can't see anything unless there is very severe lead poisoning. That's like Thompson, a professor at Wayne State University and an expert on lead. There is a very substantial direct correlation between lead poisoning and loss of IQ and lead poisoning and loss of the ability to control your impulsive reactions. What do you think? That doesn't hurt at all. So hundreds of parents were getting their children tested this week, bringing them to a, yes, this is the title, Family Fun Night and Lead Testing Event at one of the city's schools. There were balloon animals, toys, volunteers being as perky as possible, but squirming toddlers still had to get their fingers pricked repeatedly to draw enough blood to fill a little vial. I think, Beth, unfortunately, I'm going to have to poke you one more time, okay? Evelyn Woods brought her five-year-old Bethany for testing. She got a stuffed dog after her test. She seems like she's being pretty brave. Yeah. What did you tell her before you guys came here? Um, I just told her she had to go get poked and get tested for, you know lead and make sure she was okay. The tests, which were paid for by the county health department, will come back in a week or two. But lead levels are only detectable for 30 to 40 days. So kids could have been poisoned months ago, and it wouldn't show up now. The place where any long-term damage will show up is in school. Eileen Tomasi is the Flint School District nurse. The one nurse for the entire district. That's 5,500 students. Some of the psychologists in the district have said they're, they're the little kids, the three, four, and five-year-olds that they're testing, that they've already seen a difference. What are they seeing? Um, they're, not, they're not where they should be right now um, as far as like sociability skills that they test the little ones. This is going to be a, a, an ongoing issue for years and years and years. It's, it's a whole generation here that's been poisoned. Um, so the impact on the schools will be huge. Flint schools are deep in debt. This year, the school system hopes to have a budget deficit of only $10 million. That's down from a $21 million deficit last year. It's unclear how a system so strapped, even before the lead, can handle this. The Flint superintendent, Bilal Tawab, says the schools will need more special ed teachers, more nurses, and more early childhood programs. He says they hope to get more money from the state— and describe the situation as an education emergency, one where the mistakes of adults are being paid for by kids. 
The state of Michigan ended free bottled water distribution in Flint in April. Recent tests show the levels of lead in the city's tap water are now within state and federal quality standards. But a number of groups, governmental, scientific, and academic, disagree over whether the municipal water is safe to drink. And if you want to learn more, check out the excellent work of Michigan Radio. This second favorite story of mine is very different. It's about Brexit, Britain's vote to leave the European Union. But what it shares with the Flint story is how everyday people's lives and futures can change instantaneously when big policy decisions are made. Yeah, it's where the economy meets real life. A few days after the Brexit vote in 2016, I hopped on a plane, then a train, then a bus, to where the Industrial Revolution began, a town called St. Helens, not too far from Liverpool. St. Helens is two and a half hours by train from London, but it feels worlds away. It's quiet, brick buildings recall the British Empire, and there's a windy town square with a memorial to the dead from both world wars. And 58% of the people here voted out. And it doesn't take long, even just walking down the street, to find them. Angela Whitley. I voted leave. Tell me why. If you go to the hospital, you're waiting a long time. There's no room for any more people to come in the country. She was leaving a tea shop with her niece, Nancy Knowles, who disagrees. I voted to remain because I work in local government and a lot of the hype about immigrants claiming benefits simply isn't true in this area particularly. But job losses and austerity measures have hurt this town. Nancy didn't make her mind up to vote in until the very end. The economy was going through my mind at the last minute. There's not much industry left in this in this town anymore. A sad irony because this town was once a powerhouse. While 18% of its people still work in manufacturing, that's a far drop from its heyday. We came to fruition through the birth of the Industrial Revolution. That's Ron Helsby, who runs World of Glass. It's a museum to the industry that used to dominate St. Helens and the countryside around it. Everybody probably associates St. Helens with Pilkingtons and the glass manufacturing, but that's only one story of the legacy that still remains within the town. He walked me through exhibits dedicated to coal mining, pottery, medicine, and his organization's namesake, Glass. The business that used to employ thousands of people on every shift. Today, Pilkingtons is owned by a Japanese company. It still makes some parts in St. Helens, but automation and jobs moving elsewhere mean that a middle-class life of 30 years in the factories here is mostly gone. My name is William Leyland, and I'm 73. He had that life. I voted leave, mainly because I don't like the way Europe have been telling us what to do. He lost his last job in the glass industry when the factory he worked in closed. Like many here, he voted for the pro-Remain Labour Party his whole life, but soured on politicians for what he sees as giveaways to Europe and leaders who didn't look out for working people. Governments at the time could have helped more. I mean, if you look at the Germans and the French, they propped their industries up. Ours just seemed to let them go. I heard that frustration again and again, and it showed up in the Brexit vote. Here in the town square in St. Helens, the certificate of vote totals has been posted outside the council. The total number of votes cast was 93,721. To stay in the EU, 39,322. And the number of votes to leave the European Union, 54,357. 
I ended my day in St. Helens in, where else, a pub. It's called the Glass House, named for the town's main industry. And even before I joined their table, Keith Bromelow, Brian Burroughs, and Rodney Bate were arguing about Brexit. Rodney and Brian voted in, and Keith was for out. I'm a working man, and I don't see how Europe, as it is, is helping the working man in this country. I've voted out, not for me personally, but for my children and grandchildren, to be honest. I voted in for my children and grandchildren. (laughs) That was Brian chiming in to contradict him. And while they're laughing, just as long as someone buys the next round, what kind of Britain their grandchildren will see is really anyone's guess. So there's one more favorite from my time at Marketplace. And I can admit that I have probably lost days of work productivity since 2012 by watching brown bears in Katmai National Park in Alaska catch and eat salmon on a live video stream. It's commonly known as Bear Cam, and 22 million people watched it in 2015. There are also osprey cams and eagle cams, walrus cams, all from remote corners of the globe. And they're streamed by the nonprofit organization Explore.org. Charlie Annenberg Weingarten founded it, and last July I finally got to speak with him. And I asked if people sit there enjoying Bear Cam, should they donate? Sometimes when I look at these cams myself, I think of them as an antidote to stress. The world's going through a lot of difficult times right now, and I feel like Explore.org is an oasis of peace. And so I think that's fine. Isn't that what nature's about? Isn't that what parks are about? To to be able to explore and to let go. And so I truly believe that that's okay. I don't think that you have to I don't to need involved. to give five bucks or do anything no. like that? No, I don't. And I'll tell you why I say that. Yeah. I've traveled through every state in America. And what I discovered was there are so many amazing, hardworking people out there. And they want to get involved, but they don't have the means. And it makes them feel bad. And the fact that they can connect, because truly the most valuable currency in any movement is your time. And so what happens is when you're on Explore, you can connect with these nonprofits. And eventually they do give. They don't give out of a a guilt-ridden state. And so anyone can give. It's just that we don't make that the emphasis because the first step is learning, awareness, education. And I think if you really do want to give, you will. But a lot of people don't have that fortunate background to be able to do that. And you have to respect that. You know, I'm I'm talking to you because the Bear cam, and I should say cams, as there are many, uh, is what drew me to this. But there are all sorts of other cameras. Uh, Do you have a favorite? It's so neat to be able to allow people to voyeur like this and and connect. I love them all. You're talking to the wrong guy. But yes, the bears are my, they have a special place in my heart. Forever my favorite. I'm Eliza Mills. And I'm Peter Ballinon-Rosen. We're the producers of Marketplace Weekend. And we're taking over for Lizzie for just a moment to bring you our next segment. Here at Marketplace Weekend, we peek behind the scenes of the financial lives and careers of artists, writers, musicians, people in the spotlight. It's a segment we call the Marketplace Quiz. And this week, we have a special guest. You all know her. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and for the past four years, I've been the host of this show. So fill in the blank. Money can't buy you happiness, but it can buy you... 
money can't buy you happiness, but it can buy you the kind of cushion to have a wonderful rescue dog who lives with you, and that is an unending source of happiness. So, you know, my girl gets her walks, and she gets her playgroup, and I get snuggles. In the next life, what would your career be? Dinosaur psychologist. Because I would be able to figure out not only what happened, but how they felt about it and like whether they knew they were doomed. And, you know, really explore kind of the thoughts and feelings about that. Like, are you a ruthless predator with no regrets? Or is it all cool and you're just mad you have tiny little hands? (laughs) True. Lizzie, what's the hardest part about your job that nobody knows? The constant fear of getting something wrong. I lie awake at night thinking about every aspect of our stories. Was it fair? Was it accurate? Was there something we missed? Was there another phone call we should have made? Um, At the end of the day, people trust us with their stories. I want to make sure we've done everything we can to get them perfect. What is something that you bought that you now completely regret buying? A lot of high heels. I had all these like TV correspondent clothes back when I was a TV correspondent, and they are useless, man. Um, yeah, no, I regret those. Those are silly. Comfortable clothes all the way. <laughs> when did you realize journalism could be an actual career for you? I worked after college at a bunch of different random jobs, and I actually worked for Bill Bradley on his presidential campaign. But I was fascinated by what the journalists were doing. I didn't really care as much about politics or who won. I wanted to do what the reporters who were on and off the bus were doing. And one of the reporters on the campaign helped me get through the door at ABC News. And I was so excited by it that I didn't mind that I worked all night long and, you know, on the graveyard shift and all that stuff. And I thought, I can do this. I I can do this and I can love it. What is your most prized possession? And caveat for you, dogs do not count as possessions. I would never treat Mara as a possession. What's my most prized possession? Besides my engagement ring. Thank you, honey. I think a pair of noise-canceling headphones. No, that sounds terrible. Is it the ring? Sounds like it was the ring. (laughs) Maybe let's just go with the ring. (laughs) What was your very first job? I worked at a sandwich shop that was down the street from my high school. Um, It was called AKA Frisco's. And we made lots of different sandwiches with uh, San Francisco neighborhood themed names. I can make a very good sandwich very quickly. We had, let's see, we had a North Beach, we had a Knob Hill. I can't remember what the roast beef one with horseradish is. All roast beef sandwiches should have horseradish, by the way. What is something that everyone should own, no matter how much it costs? A bath caddy. It is a simple wooden device. It sits across the bath. It holds a book, a glass of wine, whatever you want. It is like a magical transport to a moment of oasis. It is cheap and it is 
heavenly. You've gotten pretty far in your career. What's advice you wish someone had given you before you started out? I guess two pieces. N- number one, which is my sort of general, you know, grad advice for all young people is that you will screw up. And the best way to do that is to screw up early and often and to make mistakes and face them and apologize to the people you made them to and to try things that are scary and hard. And the other thing I will say is, and this is something that a journalism professor and mentor of mine from graduate school said, study the thing you love. If you want to cover a certain area, if you want to dig into something, like figure out who did it best. Figure out what they did well, what they did wrong. Commit yourself not only to the craft, but to understanding what, if there is something, makes that craft important and why you believe in it. You can listen to past Marketplace quiz takers and four years of Marketplace Weekend material on our website. Go to marketplace.org. And that is it for Marketplace Weekend. This show is produced by Eliza Mills and Peter Balanon-Rosen, with help this week from Paulina Velasco. Past members of the weekend team include Haley Hirschman, Raghu Manavalan, Jenny Ament, John Sepulvedo, Sean McHenry, and Dan Sematovich, and help from many freelance contributors over the years. Joanne Griffith is Marketplace Weekend's wonderful executive producer. Our engineer this week is Ben Tolliday, but the show has been put together over the years by Daniel Ramirez, Charlton Thorpe, Chris Clark, Brian Allison, Jake Gorski, Drew Jostad, Dan Powell, Sarah Bruguer, and others. Our theme music this week was composed by Daniel Ramirez and Ben Tolliday. Evelyn LaRubia is Marketplace's executive editor. Deborah Clark is our senior vice president and general manager. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and it has been a pleasure and an honor to host this show and spend some time with all of you. This is APM.